I hope that you all are doing well and feeling well. We still have a few out that are, that are not feeling good, but it's certainly good to see those who have been sick and, and those who are back. So we thank you, and we're, we're so thankful for the Lord that you're back and that the Lord has healed you. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, and this morning we are going to finish chapter 4. The whole purpose, once again, of 1 Peter is to write to Christians and churches that were scattered throughout Asia Minor who have been suffering. It's to encourage them, these elect exiles who are facing persecution and suffering. Remember, their persecution wasn't widespread. It wasn't state-sponsored or even bloody at this point. Yet because Christians, as Christians, they stood out in their beliefs, they stood out in their practices, their morals, their worship, and they faced persecution because of what they believed and what they held to. And when they faced persecution, suffering comes. They were the new religion on the block. They lost their jobs, they lost friends, they lost family, their possessions were stolen or vandalized. They were ridiculed and put down, marginalized throughout society where they could have, where they would have nowhere to turn. They had nowhere to seek justice or help. Last week we ended in verse 11 with a glorious doxology. A glorious doxology. But the passage was about keeping life amidst persecution, keeping in perspective in our lives that the end of all things is at hand. The end is near people of God, followers of Christ, church. Be self-controlled, be sober-minded, keep loving one another earnestly since Love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable. Use the gifts of grace that God has given to you to be a blessing to one another, to serve them and to speak of, the, of God's word. All to the glory of Christ forever and ever. Amen. She's the best. So as we close out chapter 4, Peter's going to come back to this main theme of suffering, and he's going to make his final arguments on suffering and how God intends his people to endure through suffering. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials, fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And if the, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit Move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. There are two paths 
set before us. Two choices you can make when faced with, let's say, it's a dilemma. Or with that dilemma, let's call it suffering. You can go one way, and surely that path will be quite easy. It would be much easier. No uphill, no switchbacks, no treacherous water crossings or mountain climbing. Just smooth walking with thousands of others to take the same path of least resistance. However, if you go this way, the whole purpose of why you're on the journey in the first place will be wasted. The goal, the prize at the end will be no more if you go this way. Sure, this way has its benefits. It has its prizes. It has its thrills. It has its loves. It has its comforts and its ease. And you'll be widely accepted by all those uh, around you. But does, does it really compare to the treasure if you go the other way on the path? So speaking of the other path, the other way, listen, to be honest, it's, it doesn't look good. It's not going to be easy. It's what we call tough sledding. It's all uphill. There's very little room for leisure and rest. It will be filled with difficulty, potentially deadly with each step. Friends, some will desert you. Some will even turn into enemies. Others will make fun of you for taking such a dumb path of difficulty. Some will even intentionally attempt to derail you off this path. But the hardest will be the temptation to slide from this path and to believe the lies of ease and comfort and acceptance above the great treasure that lies before you. But like I said earlier, to endure this path, there is a prize at the end like no other. And it's not like you will be completely alone, even if you are deserted by friends and family, because there was one who has taken this path before you, who has gone ahead of you, and he has not left you alone to follow him. He has sent you a helper. He has sent you a guide. If you climb Mount Everest, you take a Sherpa along with you to be your guide so that you make it to the top, safely. The pioneer who has gone before us has given us a helper. When the threat of persecution, difficulty, or suffering comes, it's like those two paths are presented before us each time. Infamously, Judas made that choice. Judas Iscariot made that choice. He got up from the table during the Lord's Supper, and he left in a hurry because he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver to the religious leaders. Judas took that path because he couldn't stand that the Messiah's glory would come through rejection and suffering. But Jesus, the pioneer who has gone before us, he took the path way less traveled. Jesus told his disciples of his path of suffering with his coming glory. In the garden, Jesus lifted his eyes to heaven and said in John 17, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Jesus knew that his eternal glory would come through suffering and death on a cross. He was not surprised, nor was he taken off guard. It wasn't even a choice for him which path he would take. He embraced that which was set for him. And Peter, 
who wrote this letter to the church, inspired by the Holy Spirit, had a front row participant seat to hear and to see all of this. When he is commending us to suffer well and to endure in this letter, he is showing us to walk the path that Jesus had walked. He is teaching with front row experience of watching Jesus himself endure suffering. And as Peter wraps up his teaching on suffering, we are told in this passage to uh, three important truths of how we will continue or how we are to continue to endure on that same path of following Christ. Number one, suffering is not strange. Number two, rejoice in your suffering. And number three, trust in your sovereign God. There are many strange things in this world, to say the least. Strange experiences, strange creatures, strange phenomenons, strange cultures, strange foods, Strange people, strange weather, strange inner insects, strange animals. There are all kinds of strange. Watch some documentaries on animals or insects or the world, and you will be amazed of the strange things that this world has. And the smallest of molecules to the largest of animals, they are, some of them are just strange. Or the, the food channel. Watch the weirdo who travels around the world and eats the craziest stuff. That's strange. For something to be strange to us, it has to be something that's unknown. It has to be something that's unexperienced by us personally or something that we don't know about. It's strange to us. And when something is strange to us, then we can be surprised by that, and we're shocked by the beetles that they eat, or something like that, or whatever it may be. We're surprised, and we're shocked by it. In verse 12, Peter tells us, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials, the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. How does something that is strange become unstrange? How does something become unstrange to us so that we are not surprised, we're not taken off guard? How does something that is terrifying and fearful and scary no longer scare or terrify us? Well, you learn from Dorothy. You learn from Dorothy. You look behind the curtain, and you see the truth. You see the great Oz for what he really is. You gain knowledge and truth about it. And what, first, and what in 1 Peter's doing, what Peter's doing in verse 12, is he's giving us truth. He's giving us knowledge to Christians who are scared of the unknown, who are scared at this strange phenomena of being persecuted, of suffering because they love Christ. We're frightened, not with a good surprise, but a bad surprise. A couple of weeks ago, in my sermon from uh, the beginning of chapter 4, 1 through 6, I made the point that Christians will suffer. We understand we live in a fallen world which we taste the effects of the fallenness of the world, and we see the pain and brokenness all around us. Storms hit. Tornadoes rage. Volcanoes erupt. Illnesses strike. There are floods. There are famines. There are wildfires that destroy lives and property. We all know that creation is groaning under the curse of sin. 
We also suffer because we are united with evil men. This is the reality that we all have to endure because we live under the authority of those who are, who can be lazy and careless, or worse, malicious, oppressive, and abusive. And we have to live under the consequences of such authorities. For example, in just one year, politicians and appointed bureaucrats can ruin a thriving economy that has lifted millions out of poverty and prosperity to serve a political ideology, leaving in the wake millions of people jobless, families struggling with the soaring gas prices, inflation on everything in empty shelves. Political leaders start wars. Generals mislead in them, and soldiers die, and they are, and leave in the wake widows and orphans. So-called friends and family members can also do the very worst to us. This is an unfortunate reality that we are united with evil men and face the consequences of their sin. Another way we suffer is because of our own sin, lest we forget that we too are also capable of evil. Proverbs 5.22 says, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of this sin. We are our own worst enemies, and no one has lied to us more than you. No one has lied to you more and has hurt you more than you. And no one has suffered the consequences of that more than you. Fourth, we suffer under the deliberate malice of others. There are those who are hostile to Christianity and wish to work harm and to hurt Christians for what they believe. Go look up a man named Jack Phillips of the Masterpiece Bakery in Lakewood, Colorado, who even after years of battle, where the Supreme Court affirmed his constitutional right to exercise his religious conviction to not participate in making cakes for homosexual weddings, yet again, there are attackers upon him. Coming from another angle, he is still being fined, his business is being ran out of town, and he is losing his permits to conduct business. All these fiery trials, one way or another, Peter is saying that if you are a Christian, you should expect suffering and persecution from a world, from the world, especially if you stand and hold the line. Jesus told his disciples that they should expect suffering. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now Jesus is certainly giving us a pretty, some pretty important information about the likelihood and the reality of tribulation and suffering because of sin and all of these different ways that we just talked about. But what Jesus does, I love what he does here. He completely outshines that tribulation with glorious news for those who have the eyes to see. And that he says, I have overcome the world. And if he has overcome the world, and if you are following on this path, then you too will overcome the world. So when we hear Peter saying, do be surprised at the fiery trials when, if not if, when it comes upon you, guess what? I don't think it's going to be as bad as we think. Now, I know he's not sugarcoating it. He's not sugarcoating suffering or Christian persecution because there's no sugar, uh, sugarcoating 
what, what has happened throughout the centuries of Christian persecution or even just suffering and living in a world. I do not want to sugarcoat it because it is not pretty. It's ugly, and at times it can be bloody. Fiery trials could literally mean fire, but it doesn't always mean burnt at the stake. It means that it will be hard and it will be painful in all the different ways that we can experience hardship and pain, like going through fire. But this is just one reason why the Bible is just so wonderful. Because the Bible never downplays anything. It never downplays and nor does it overplay anything. It tells you exactly the way it is. He's telling you exactly the truth. And us Western Christians, we need to hear this. We need to hear this because even though we still live in a time of relative ease and acceptance, we may want to downplay these warnings here just because experience tells us that most likely I can preach what I want and I won't get arrested. We might only face mild mockery or dismissive remarks or, well, you're... You're just a Christian, so uh, you mean nothing here. Your opinion doesn't count. You're a science denier, whatever it wants to say. We may not be taken seriously. feel marginalization. But there is no guarantee that this relative peace will last. And we must be acknowledged and prepared so that we are not surprised, like, Boom, surprise, shocked. Then suffering comes. Here's a part of that truth. Christian suffering is never wasted. It's painful, but it's never wasted by God. God's word says that it comes upon you to test you. The purpose of suffering is testing. Do not be surprised when the Lord tests you and brings about suffering in your life. Do not think that it is strange that your heavenly Father, who does love you, has brought suffering in your life. Do not be surprised by that. And this is the question that so many Christians struggle with. How can a loving God allow suffering in my life? I have asked that question to myself in the dark soul of the night. Why me, Lord? What did I do to deserve this? You see, the whole line of thinking is, is off. Because number one, it asserts that we deserve something from God. We deserve His, we, we deserve his love. We deserve His mercy. We deserve His grace. We think that suffering also equals unloving. And not and in that and also in that God is not in control. But the Bible says the complete opposite. That he does it for our strengthening, our testing, for our sanctification, for our refinement. What really shapes us and strengthens us is through difficulty and suffering. My faith has grown exponentially through suffering. When you need to have surgery, it's always going to be scary and painful afterwards, right, William? No matter how much they take care of you, no matter how much pain medicine they may give you, you will always feel the pain. So why go through it? Why go through all of that? Because you know, no surprise, the outcome would be better for you. The outcome will always be better, at least we hope. Suffering in the hands of the Lord is like a skilled surgeon precisely addressing the places in your heart where you have unbelief, you have loved sin, where you have a love for the world or idolatry. By enduring Christian suffering, the testing of our faith, by God's grace and mercy, we will be found genuine at the revelation of Christ. 
Suffering is meant by, by God to prepare us, brothers and sisters, for our future inheritance. We must have a correct theology of suffering that is rightly informed by the scripture so that when we face it, we're not asking the wrong questions or nor are we surprised that suffering has come. Now the text gets kind of weird because we all get, we get to the heart of the, the passage here in verse 13 through 16. And he says not just to not be surprised or shocked when it comes upon you, but he goes further now and saying, rejoice in your suffering. In verse 13, he says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Rejoice in suffering? How weird is that? Who does that? Talk about turning everything upside down. Talking about a surprise to the world. Someone rejoicing in suffering. How unconventional to the soul to rejoice in suffering. But rejoice. Rejoice. And here's why. First, because we share in his suffering. We rejoice first because we share in his suffering. The sufferings of Christ refers to the suffering that comes because of our allegiance to Christ. Christ suffered for his faithfulness. Christ suffered so that we do not, uh, and so that if we follow him, excuse me, and we follow him on the same path in faithfulness, then we too will also suffer. In Acts chapter 5, the high priests and the Sadducees had enough with the apostles and their preaching Jesus. And so they had them all arrested and they threw them in jail and they wanted to kill them. That was the intent. We're going to kill these guys and we're going to be done with this thing forever. Cooler heads prevailed, though. And they were only beaten. I say only, right? Because you put it in relative to killed. They were beaten, and they were commanded, don't preach Christ anymore. Don't preach Jesus anymore. And then they let them go. In Acts chapter 5, verse 41, this is what the apostles did. Many of y'all are familiar. They left the council. They left the presence of the council rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Oh yeah. They continue to preach. They continue to proclaim Jesus as Christ as well. They, they continue to do that. They were beaten. Now that's called suffering. Being beaten, that's called suffering, right? And what was their response to being beaten? They rejoiced. And they rejoiced because they counted themselves worthy to suffer for Christ. How counterintuitive, how unconventional to our soul that is. But how healthy it is for our souls. This is what Peter is teaching because Peter knew this very well. Peter understood what it meant to leap and rejoice or limp and rejoice at the same time. To have a black eye and holding up John at the same time. He understood. He knew it. And he understood what it felt to rejoice in Christ when you suffer because you're worthy to suffer for Christ. Can you fathom that thinking to consider all things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ? Rejoice as you share in his suffering, following him on his path. The second reason why we rejoice is because his glory will be revealed. Simply put, we rejoice in suffering because we are reminded. 
we are reminded of something very important that is always to be on our mind, brother and sister, and that is future joy. Rejoicing is mandated so that we will have joy in God's presence in the day of judgment. How believers respond to suffering, in other words, is indicating of whether they truly know and belong to God at all. The promises of future joy excites, it motivates, it energizes the joy that will be yours in the future, even through suffering. And Peter is just building on, once again, the very words that Jesus spoke. Matthew chapter 5, on the Sermon of the Mount, verse 12, Jesus said this, almost, Peter's quoting him verbatim almost, Rejoice and be glad, because I've blessed you with a million dollars in your bank account. Because you're going to be happy and healthy your whole day and your whole life. No that would be a misquote, slightly. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Not here. Heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Future joy will belong to you when his glory is revealed. And by implication, those who do not rejoice in their suffering do not look forward to that future joy. The one who groans, the one who complains, the one who's loathing now means that they probably will be disappointed then on that future day. But brothers and sisters, we rejoice in sorrow because we know his glory will be revealed. And that means that we don't put all of our eggs in the basket of this life. Third, we rejoice because you are blessed. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Insults. One of the fiery trials, which at this point in suffering is probably what most, of, most Christians face, what most of these Christians have probably faced one way or another. Yet the point is not upon insults, but it's the weight of the blessing. If you are insulted, marginalized, put down, made fun of, whatever it may be, because of Christ and the gospel, then we are truly blessed. You may be insulted by human beings. You may be put down. But truly, you are blessed by God himself. I've often spoke of this, but in high school, there was a young man who was quiet. He was very studious. He was also very polite. And he was a Christian. He would take his Bible to school. He would place it down on his desk every class. He would read it at lunchtime. And he would small wooden cross around his neck. He didn't look cool. He didn't wear the coolest clothes. He didn't have the coolest hairdo. He didn't have a fancy car. Probably old. That. But he was made fun of often. He was made fun of, and behind his back, people would call him Jesus boy. It turned out, kind of funny, he, he was our valedictorian when we graduated. And so when he stood up and he gave his speech, there was, he had every right to get revenge. But he didn't. He talked about how thankful he was to be able to go to school with, with his teachers and the staff that were there and also his classmates. He told us then what really mattered to him, and that was Christ and the gospel. He was blessed. And we are too, as the passage says, blessed because we know that the Holy Spirit is with us. In Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 3, it speaks of the, the Holy Spirit resting on the branch of Jesse, on Jesus. 
It's the same spirit that presently rests on you if you are in Christ. Brothers and sisters who suffer are blessed because now you enjoy God's favor, God's blessing, the the tasting and the wonder of the, the glory that is to come and to be experienced by the promised Holy Spirit. And yet he gives us a, a caveat, though, in our suffering here. In verse 15, he makes this very important caveat. And I think he, did it, he has done it earlier in 1 Peter, but he says it again. That none of you should suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Meaning, if, if, if you sin and you break the law and you're punished for it, for being a murderer or a thief or evildoer, or even all the way down the line, if you're just a jerk and you can't mind your own business and you get in trouble for these things, then you should, be, you should expect suffering. You should expect the consequences of those things. But do not say or even believe that you are a victim. Christian suffering is real. And legitimately... When we face it, we rejoice, and we are blessed. And as he says later in verse 16 here, he says we are to not be ashamed. If anyone suffers as a Christian, verse 16, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The name or the identity Christian at the time was not exactly a term of endearment. It was a slanderous term given to Christians in Antioch, and that stuck. It was seen as a put-down when someone was identified as being a Christian. And so what Peter is saying here is, listen, if they insult you, and then they lump you in this group, and you know how they say it, Christian or Christian? He's one of those fundamentalists. When they put it in those terms, what Peter is saying is he says, own it. Don't be ashamed of it. Own it and glorify God. Listen to Romans 5. He says, Romans 5, it says, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope that does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. We rejoice in our suffering, that knowing that suffering is producing endurance in us. And once again, this command to not be ashamed, doesn't Peter know very intimately well what it is to be ashamed? When he denied Jesus, I think he understood how dangerously close he was to take the other path. When he denied Christ and was ashamed. And he's telling us to not be ashamed. Brothers and sisters, never be ashamed of who you are in Christ in this cynical age. Never be ashamed of Christian or the gospel or Christ or the inerrancy of God's word, the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the the God, the Father, the church. Never be ashamed. Students, never be ashamed of the gospel. Older saints, never be ashamed because of all of you are in the Lord. And know this, that the Lord will be with you. The Lord will be with you. And lastly, from the last three verses, to stay on the right path of suffering, we are to trust in our sovereign God. Trust in your sovereign God. In verse 17, we are taken to a place that we've already been to in 1 Peter, and that is judgment. But here we see the connection between suffering and God's judgment. He says, for a time... For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly 
in the center. Now we know exactly who he's talking to. He's talking to the church. The household of God is, is Old Testament language or reference meaning to the, to the temple. And it could be an allusion back to Ezekiel 9 or Malachi 3. We read Malachi chapter 3 at the, the beginning of our gathering this morning. For the Lord will come to his temple and refine and purify his people. And then the offerings of his people will be accepted. That's from Malachi. The temple or the household of God that Peter is referring to is the church. And he's saying that in the church, judgment begins with us. Now to put it back in context with verse 12, we're not to be surprised when fiery trials come our way. Well, we know that testing is there to purify us individually. But now he is referring to the church corporately. And that through our suffering trial and trials, there is judgment or purification to the repentance of sin corporately. For false believers to be exposed, whatever it may be, suffering reveals in the church who are God's people. It's sort of a mini version of the separation of the wheat and the tares and the sheep and the goats among the body of Christ. This judgment begins with us. It begins in the church. But yet, brothers and sisters, it is not for our destruction, like in Ezekiel 9, to destroy the wicked of Israel, but to restore us, like in Malachi 3, to bring about repentance and the refinement and the restoration of the body of Christ. Our judgment here is for our purification and for our holiness to beautify us and to make us like Christ. Yet that is not the case for those who do not obey the gospel of God. And he's sort of asking this rhetorical question that if it begins with us, those who are loved by God, we are redeemed by Christ, and we are being judged, and it's beginning with us, how much worse will it be for the lost? How will their judgment be? You see, this is one of those questions we, we really don't want to answer. Because we are judged now, but how hard can it really be? And it's going to be painful. Yes, it's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. But yet we know that it's preparing us for something. It's preparing us to see Christ. It's preparing us to, to delight in Him and to prepare us for our joy in him and our future inheritance but the suffering that we face now is nothing in comparison to the righteous wrath that is going to be poured out on all of those who have rejected Christ certainly this is to serve as a warning a warning to 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 us and to those first who are rejecting the gospel to to repent man Repent of your sin and trust Christ, meaning you don't want this. You don't want this. And it's coming. The day is near. But it's a warning to us to continue in, in faithfulness, but it's also an encouragement to us, meaning he's saying, hey, yes, you're going to suffer here. Yes, the Lord is judging the church. He is testing you, but he's doing it for your good. He's doing it for your good now. He's preparing you for something more glorious and more greater than you can ever imagine. But it is not the judgment you would receive if it wasn't by the grace of God. Praise God to the glory of God. He quotes Proverbs 11.31, to drive home the point. The righteous are saved with difficulty, through suffering, judgment. But imagine what will come to the ungodly and to the unrighteous. Our suffering may be difficult now, or it might be later, 
But by staying on the narrow path that follows Christ, we escape the condemnation coming to the wicked. And we do this together as the body of Christ. Now remember all of that that we have already said and put it with verse 19. Therefore, let all those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Therefore, puts, us, puts it all together with verses 12 through 18. All those suffer. He says, therefore, let all those who suffer according to God's will. According to God's will. We, have to, we just have to stop for a second. This isn't the first time that we've, we've seen this idea of suffering according to God's will. And what he means here is that there is not one ounce of pain, there's not one ounce of suffering or insult or mockery or fiery trial, whatever it comes, whenever it comes, it comes our way that has not passed through the loving hand of God. That he is in complete sovereign control over all of our suffering. You know, as Christians... We love, we love Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, and rightfully so, we should. God is good. And he has been so good to us. And he truly works all things out for our good by his grace. Amen. But what about 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19? Are we as equally excited and thankful that the Lord is sovereign even over our suffering? That even in our suffering, He is working all things out for our good. And here's how we, here's how we get to that place. Here's how we, we get to that place that we understand that we're, we're just as thankful. It says we put all of our trust in our faith, in our faithful creator while, being, while doing good. You know what this means? This means, this means handing ourselves over to the, the care. There's a lot of trust involved when you give yourself to someone in marriage. There's a lot of trust. You get married, and you place all your trust into this, into this spouse in, in a way that you're, you're going to be vulnerable with them, you're going to be honest with them and open with them, you're going to care for one another, you're going to love one another in a very particular, special way. But what we are seeing here is that God is not our spouse, but that he is our God. That he is not just anyone. I could fail my wife. I do fail my wife. I could break her trust. But the Lord never does. And he never will. He says he is our creator. Isn't that interesting? Why didn't he just say he is trusting your, your God? Or your Lord. There's some, that's very emphatic, right? We know what those means. Those are good things. But why does he say creator? Because he wants us to think that he's our creator. That he's our creator. That he's sovereign over all creation. That he has created all things. And not only has he created all things, but he sustains all things. He's sovereign over all things. And if he is our creator and sovereign over all creation, then as Jesus said, if he cares for the birds and the fish of the sea, how much more will he care for you? How much more will he love you? This 
is why you can be confident that he will not allow you to suffer beyond your capacity and that he will provide the strength needed to endure. And he says, and all of that by doing good. And that's just a summary of, of all the things he's been saying, to be holy, to be a blessing, to be loving to the brotherhood and to, to one another, to be submitting to authorities, to be serving one another by speaking God's word to one another and serving one another. And so that when you are, when you are persecuted, when you're insulted and the fiery trial comes, that you're not surprised, nor are you shocked, but your first reaction is to lean heavily on our sovereign Lord, creator, who will take care of you. We lean on him because he can take it. He can take it. So there are two paths. Will you follow Christ and share in his suffering? Or will you follow the path of least resistance when you suffer? Be encouraged, O Christian, to not be ashamed of being called a Christian. But entrust yourself to our sovereign God who loves you and cares for you even in your suffering. Christ has gone before us. Rejoice now, yes, in the, your, your blessings. Rejoice now in your prosperity, but also rejoice in your suffering. Because there's nothing strange going on. God is not shocked. You should not be shocked. The shock has been removed. But let us follow the narrow path that follows Christ as we wait for our future joy. And all God's people say,